We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8 today, but uh, we're going to start with uh, referencing a passage from Nehemiah chapter 3. So we're going to land in chapter 8, but start with Nehemiah chapter 3. Let's take a quick recap of where we are and uh, so that as we dive into what God has for us this morning, we kind of know where, what ground we have covered already. So here's a recap. So we're in the book of Nehemiah, and in Nehemiah, we read the story of what happened both for Nehemiah as a person and for Israel as a country, and we know that Nehemiah undertook this enormous task, enormous, and the fact is, is that he wasn't qualified for it. I mean, nothing in Nehemiah's past would suggest that he was the right guy for this job that God laid on his heart through prayer and fasting. But what he did was he used every club in the bag that God had given him. He used all of his past experiences. He used his knowledge. He leveraged his relationships. He used all of those things to trust God and to see God accomplish really some incredible things. And in the process, he rallied the entire congregation, the entire nation of Israel to work on rebuilding the wall that had broken down around them. And what that meant, if you haven't been part of our series, is it meant restoring protection. It meant uh, restoring identity. It meant offering vision and, and bringing fresh vision. And it meant bringing hope. Because wall meant all of those things in biblical times. And so, church, I want to speak to you specifically this morning. Where Whoever you are and wherever you're sitting, something, something in your life needs to be rebuilt. There is something going on in your life. There's some area in your life. There's some relationship in your life this morning that needs to be restored and rebuilt. And it's in the process of having victory in that personal application that winds up bringing us victory in the corporate setting. Because here's the truth. Everything that we accomplish together is nothing more than a reflection of all of the small personal victories that God brings about in our life. And so it starts at the personal level. So I wanna, I wanna reference a verse that we've already sort of passed over, but we didn't really spend any time on. That's in Nehemiah chapter three, verse 28. I'll be reading from the New King James in case you've got a different uh, version. Here's what it says. Beyond the horse gate, the priest made repairs each in front of his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, made repairs. What's the next phrase? Front of his own house. All right, now skip down to the second half of verse 30. And after him, Meshullam, the son of Barakiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. What does that mean? That means that Nehemiah understood we've got this giant problem. We've got this wall that goes all the way around Jerusalem and it means protection for us. It means identity for us. It means vision for us. It means hope for us. But it has set 
unbuilt and unrepaired for almost, get this, almost 90 years. So it's been sitting in ruins and these people have been dealing with this all of these years, decade after decade after decade. You know why? Because they kept looking at this enormous problem. They go, we can't fix it. And so what Nehemiah did was he created a strategy. He said, hey, listen, the place where you are most vulnerable, the place where you have the most motivation, that's where I want you to work. You get, you get the wisdom of that? The place where you are most vulnerable is the place where you're going to have the most incentive to make sure that that's fixed. And, and why did he say that? Because he understood that if everybody would take care of their issue, if they would rebuild the things in their life, if they would rebuild the wall right in front of them, that you know what would happen? They would all benefit. They would all benefit. So look in, in Nehemiah chapter four, just turn one chapter over. Verse 14, Nehemiah 4, 14. He said, and I looked and I rose and I said to the nobles, to the leaders and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome and fight, fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your houses. He said, hey, listen, Everybody's got a, got a problem out here. We're all vulnerable. And while you may not care what happens on the other side of the wall, on the other side of the city, you better care about your own family. He said, you got to rise up and you got to fight for your wives and your sons and your daughter and your house. Because that's what's on the line. If you don't fix that, we all suffer. And so he did that. And here's, here's what Nehemiah understood. Nehemiah understood that when we understand the big picture and our place in it and we have the right incentive, we'll roll up our sleeves and work. But a lot of us are just too dang lazy to bother if we don't understand the value. Now, that's just the truth, is it not? And so what he did was he, he raised the value for them addressing what was right in front of them because when you do that, we all benefit. And you benefit, and you benefit the most. And in doing that, they had to overcome external challenges. They had to overcome internal challenges. And the end result was when they had private victory, it wound up bringing a corporate, a congregational victory. And they did something in 52 days, something that had not been accomplished in 90 years. Would you say that borders just a little bit on miraculous? 52 days, something that had not been able to be done in 90 years. And so that's sort of where we have left off the story. The wall's finished and, and clearly it's an incredible accomplishment but here's the thing, it wasn't something to just be done and celebrate the victory for the sake of the victory, it was an accomplishment with a purpose, and the purpose was to reestablish the identity of these people as we belong to God. 
We are God's people. He is our God. And we raise his name above all. And we want the world to know that. That's what the purpose of the wall was. So we're going to dive into Nehemiah chapter 8 now. So flip on over to Nehemiah 8. And while you're doing that, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we kind of peel back the layers on this story of Nehemiah, and we go even further and deeper into what happened in this story, God, would you speak to every heart? God, help us to build the walls right in front of us. And then, Lord, as we do that, help us to build the walls that we need to build as a church, as a congregation. We pray this in your name. All God's people said, amen. amen. All right. So beginning in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse one. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe, hey, bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Now the book of the law of Moses at that time, that was basically their Bible. And so you know what's going on here? This is basically a church service. So they say, hey, bring out the Bible, bring out the word of God and start to share it with us. Ezra was the, was the priest, he was the preacher. And they had all gathered together just like we're gathered here right now. And what I find really, really important here in this first verse, it says all the people gathered together as one man. You know what that means? They gathered together in unity, in unity. There's an old Swahili proverb. I'm gonna put it on the screen for you. It says this, a boat doesn't go forward if each one is rowing their own way. Now, it shouldn't surprise any of us. However, how many of us have lived through in any number of applications trying to move forward while everybody's trying to go different directions. It doesn't work, does it? In the first verse of Nehemiah 8, they all came together as one man. They came together in unity. And just so that we're clear on this, this isn't just an issue for Nehemiah. In the New Testament, the call for unity is repeated over and over and over and over again. Just in case you did, you missed it, it was repeated over and over and over again. Jesus repeated it frequently. Paul repeated it frequently. The apostle Peter repeated it frequently. The apostle John said it frequently. We need unity, why? Because the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ must go forward. It must go forward. And we cannot have multiple agendas and multiple directions working against each other because nothing else is as important as the mission of the church and advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. I mean it. Now, what I'm about to say is really important. There is no church that is perfect. Not a single one. This church isn't. Whatever church you may have attended in the past, it isn't. If you're attending a different church right now and you're a guest here this morning, that church isn't. If somebody is watching this online on Facebook or listening to it on the website, whatever church you may be in, wherever you are, your church isn't perfect. There are no perfect churches. And so what that means is, 
is that every church is going to have to make some choices along the way that you're not going to like. Why? Because no church is perfect. And when you make, when a church makes a choice that you are not in agreement with, first of all, you need to remember that no church is perfect. So that means that you can't expect every decision that a church makes, whichever one that you may be in, you cannot expect it to always be in alignment with what you want. But in order to, in order to honor the Lord, that the mission of the church of Jesus Christ for the advancement of the gospel must go forward, then we, every single one of us, must get in alignment, in unity with whatever church we are part of. You have to. That's the only way to honor the Lord. Now, there are three responses to that. You can, you can get in alignment and unity. You can and you will. That's one response. And what that means is, hey, here's a decision or a direction that I wasn't particularly crazy of. It's not the one I would have made if I was the one making the decision, but I love the theology of the church. I love the doctrine of the church. I believe in the work of the church. And so that might not have been my decision, but I'm gonna stick with it. And I'm gonna serve here because this is where I wanna plant my flag to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did I say, flap? Flab, I'm gonna plant my flab. Some of us may wanna plant our flab too, I don't know. Or bury our flab. I, is it live or is it Memorex? Um, <laughs> yes, he does, thank you, sister. But you say this is, I don't agree with everything, but this is where I wanna plant my flag because I agree with most. And so I'm going to go along even with the things that I'm not 100% in agreement with because that honors God. That's one response. Another response is that you can't. Now, how does that happen? It happens when you happen to hold a, a position on theology or doctrine that maybe is so important to you that the church that you are attending maybe they don't see it the same way you do. And it's so important to you that you just cannot make peace with that. Or maybe there's, there's a uh, kind of an integrity issue within the context of the leadership of the church. And there's something that happened and you just cannot make peace with it because it just, it's, it's a kind of a, a, a hurt in your conscience that you can't align up with what you think was a breach of integrity, all right? So, that happens all the time in churches all over the place. Let me tell you what you do when you can't get in alignment or in unity with the church. You go to the leadership, say, I love you. I love the mission of, the, of God. I pray that this church is successful in accomplishing that, but I need to go to a church where I can get in alignment and in unity with what they're doing. Leave well, but go get in a place where you can be in unity with them. Why? Because that church will be served better and the church that you can't line up with will be served better. Why? Because we can't roll forward if everybody's going in the opposite direction, right? All right, so you either can and you will or you can't because of either theological or doctrinal or integrity issues. There's one other response and it's that you want. Now, when you want, that usually has to do with preference. 
See, a church is doing something that you don't like, and it's not a theological problem. It's not a doctrinal problem. But you know what? I don't like that, and you decide to make an issue out of it. Now, let me describe it this way. When we're talking about preference, it's not about what's right and what's wrong. It's, it's about this is what I prefer. So I like my steak medium. There are some people that think their steak should be well done. They're wrong. <laughs> but I think it should be medium. Now, Honestly, is it wrong to do a steak well done? Not really. There's no right way or wrong way to cook a steak. There's simply preference. What about coffee? Maybe you can serve coffee black or you can take some coffee with your cream and sugar. That happens to be the way I like it. I ate instant coffee when I was in the infantry and because I ate instant coffee, I'm like, I'll make my coffee now any way I dadgum want to. I make no apologies for it. Is it right or wrong to to make coffee one of those two ways? No, it's neither. It's just a preference. But here's the thing. You can only serve a steak one way at a time. You can only serve a cup of coffee one way at a time. A church, a plane, a boat, a car can only go in one direction at a time. And when somebody won't get in alignment or unity because of a preference. It's not because the church is right or wrong. It's because the person has decided, I want to go in a different direction. And that is something that needs to be repented of. Okay, it gets quiet when you start talking about repentance in church these days. But when somebody wants something that the church is not doing or, or they don't want something that the church is doing, it will usually start and lead into something we call in the Bible murmuring. You ever heard that? And I will say this, if you're at a church and you're a guest here this morning and you go to another church, if you're a regular here, if you're listening online and you go to a church somewhere else other than here, I beg you and I plead with you by the blood of Jesus Christ, do not fall into the trap of murmuring in your church. You are treading on very, very dangerous ground. You know why I know that? Because in the book of Proverbs, chapter six, verses 16 through 19, the the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, tells us that there are seven things that God hates. Seven things that he hates. And you know what one of them is? Somebody who sows discord among the brethren. So when somebody starts going down that road, you are treading in very, very dangerous ground. So Nehemiah says, we came together as one man in unity. The New Testament is full of reminders. We need to be in unity with each other. Why? Because the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ must go forward. And so you either can or you will, you either can and you will get on board and you get with unity. You either can't and you leave well and you go to a church where you can be in unity or you realize that you are looking at a preference and you haven't been willing and you confess and repent and get it right. 
Next Sunday, just as a reminder, we have communion. Do you know what the word communion means? There's actually two parts to that word. Com means together. And union is unity. So do you know that when we celebrate communion, we are basically saying that we are coming together with unity. Do you know that's what we're saying? Communion. Come together with unity. And so that's exactly what they were doing. Why? Because they had gone so long with things being wrong, they were ready to get this right. And church, we got to be in the exact same place. So the service continues in, chapter, in verse 4. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his hand stood Mattiah. And skip down to verse 5. It's a bunch of names that I don't need to pronounce. Verse 5 <laughs> Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people and he was standing above all the people and when he opened it up, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and then all the people answered, amen, amen. Come on, let me hear you. Amen. Amen. You know what amen means? It means so be it. When you hear the word of God proclaimed and you wanna give your yes That is what amen is. So be it, Lord. So be it in our church. So be it in my life. Amen, amen. And while they were doing that, they lifted their hands up. Now, I know some of you are like, you're just scared to death to lift your hands up. Like, well, I don't know. We're not supposed to do that in church. They did it in Nehemiah. Sometimes I'm I'm always amazed. We lift our holy hands up. That song, we lift our holy hands up. We want to touch you. And it's like, we, we lift our holy hands up because I don't really know if I want to, you know. Because, you know, somebody might see me lift my hand up. We're not supposed to lift our hands up in church. Yes, you are. It's perfectly acceptable and not only is it acceptable, it's useful to lift your hand up and say, so be it, Lord. Amen, amen. And they did that and they worshiped. They worshiped, they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. In verse eight, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them understand the reading. Here's here's what's so important about verse eight. Information without application will not bring transformation. Put this slide on uh, on the screen. You got, it requires application if we want to see a life transformed. Information simply for the sake of information isn't doing anybody any good. You remember the book of James, you said, you know, to be doers of the word and not what? Not hearers only. Hearing is nothing more than information. We just heard some information. Well, what are we supposed to do with that information? We're supposed to do something with it. And so in verse eight of Nehemiah, what he's saying is that we wanted to help them understand it. Why? So they could apply it and be transformed in their life. They just built this wall. It was an amazing accomplishment. But they also wanted that wall to stand for the rebuilding and the restoring of their spiritual lives. And you know what they understood? They understood, Ezra and Nehemiah understood that if we don't help people see the connection and if we don't help people understand the word of God, 
then all we will have accomplished is the rebuilding of the wall, but the rebuilding won't sustain it. It's got to be maintained. There's a law of thermodynamics that some of you will know, and it says anything left to itself will what? Decay. Anything left to itself will decay. You know what that means? If you're not working on it, if you're not maintaining it, it will start to fall apart. Nehemiah and Ezra understood that. And if we're going to keep the wall built, if we're going to keep what God has redone in our lives uh, built, then we have to come to the word of God and we have to understand it in a way that we can do something with it so that our lives become transformed. It is always my goal as I stand before you every Sunday morning to make sure that I not only bring the word of God to you, but that I give you a tool to use it. If I don't do that, I have failed you. Any pastor, any preacher who stands up before a congregation of people and does nothing but bring the word of God, but doesn't help people understand it and how to live it out is doing a great disservice to the people who have invested their time to hear him speak. Sometimes I fall short of what I want to accomplish as I am speaking to you. But I promise you it is my goal every time I stand before you to give you something that you can use as you walk out of here. So the service continues in verse 9. Nehemiah was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Verse 10, he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send the portions to those for whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. Don't sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people and they said, be still for the day is holy, don't be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that would de declare to them. It's as they gather, he's saying, hey, this is a day, you don't mourn or weep on this day. This is a day of celebration. What does that mean to me? And what to, for, to share with you? Sunday, Sunday ought to be the best day of your week. It ought to be the best day of your week. And I thought, well, how can, how can I describe that? Um, I don't know if any of y'all are like us. Uh, you, I, I would assume that probably some of you are like this. And if you are, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Anytime we go on a trip, if we're ever going to go on the road somewhere on a vacation or we're going to be on the road for a little while, my wife has one demand that I have to take the car in to be washed and cleaned up and detailed. Does anybody else have to do that before you go on the road? All right. There's a bunch of you. I, we can't leave. We cannot go on the road until and unless the car is all clean and spotless and all shiny and new. Shiny and new. You can't, can't do it. <laughs> and so, so I always do it. Now, part of me goes, this is stupid. I don't need to do this. But on the other hand, I have to admit that when I get in the car and it's all sparkly clean, it feels like it rides better. 
It's like I'm driving down the road. Oh man, this is sweet. Yeah, yeah. It just seems like it runs better, it rides better. Everything is better when it's all clean and shiny. Plus, wives know better. And wives know better, right. So we just listen to them and do what they say. <laughs> now, the truth is, by the time we get to where we're going, it's going to be covered in bugs. And that's when you go, why did I do that? It's going to be covered in dirt. It's going to be covered in bugs. You go, yeah, that was pointless. I just wasted my time and money. But it felt good when you started. Here's the thing. By the time you get to the end of your week this week, you are going to be covered with dirt and bugs. But when you come to church, this is the chance to get shiny, new, cleaned up, filled back up, refueled, and ready for the week that's ahead. Amen. Amen. So every Sunday morning is that chance to come in and get all shined up, not to put on pretense to anybody, but to know I'm going to take on the world with the wind of Jesus behind me because he's filled me back up and he's made me ready for a week ahead. Amen? Amen? So every Sunday should be the best day of your week. Verse 13, now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. The heads of the father's houses of all the people. Men, are you hearing this? Are you seeing this, men? Because what he's saying is that the heads of the houses, the men of the congregation, they came together to hear and understand the law. They knew that they must come together and they must understand what God is requiring of them. Now, here's what happened. Verse 14, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities, which means that they should tell everybody wherever they were, and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the mountain, bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of leafy trees, and make booths as it is written. So here, here's what they understood. The men got together. They understood the word of God. This is what the word of God says. They knew that they were supposed to spread that information. Verse 16, and then the people went out and they brought, and, and brought them and made themselves booths. So the men come together, understand what God is directing them to do. They go tell the rest of the family, the rest of the congregation, and you know what happens? They do it. They do it. Verse 17, the whole assembly, at the end of that sentence, it says that they made booths. I want all of my men this morning, wherever you are, even if you're a guest, I want all my men to stand up right now. I want all my men to stand up.
See, as we look at this passage of Scripture, men, you know what this tells us? This tells us that when men of God stand up and step up to be spiritual leaders, that it changes the culture around them. What had happened is that this observance that God had commanded had been ignored for years and years and years. But when the men of God got together to understand what God was saying, and they said, hey, we're going to follow the Lord, they went back and they spread the news and the culture started to change. What does that mean for us in here this morning, men? It means that you can change the culture around you if and when you step up to be the spiritual leader that God made you to be. You know what that means? You want your family, you want your family to function better, to work better, to follow the Lord better, then you can do it. You can stand up and lead as the spiritual leader that God made you to be. We want our church to be stronger, to accomplish more for the cause of Christ. We can do it when we step up as men and we lead that charge. Amen? We, if we're being honest, we know that our cities, our communities, our country is going to hell in a handbasket. Just ask what these kids put up with in school. If we want to change that, it has to start with us. And I am challenging you this morning, brothers, men, let's be these men in Nehemiah. Let's lead our families. Let's lead our church. Let's shape our culture for the cause of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray over you right now. God, I pray that every one of these men standing here this morning, God, I pray that you will imbue them with a fresh helping and anointing of your spirit, God. I pray that you will help make their hands willing to work, that you will make their backbones strong to withstand criticism and the winds of the world that blow against us. God, I pray that you will give them minds that are open to receive your instruction from your word, and God, that you will give them tender hearts toward those who need you. God, bless and anoint these men in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Men, you can sit down. Go over to chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. And then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners And they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of their Lord, their God, for one-fourth of the day. I don't know how good your math is, but best as I could tell, that's six hours. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped. That's a 12-hour service. Kind of makes an hour, 15 minutes not look so bad, does it? <laughs> hour, 15 minutes, 12 hours. Hour, 15 minutes, 12 hours. Just like Nehemiah in chapter one, they understood that they had to confess their own sin. 
See, it's real easy for us to see fault in other people, isn't it? Man, we got no problem with that whatsoever. That's why Jesus said, why, why are you talking about the speck in somebody else's eye when you got a beam sticking out of your own? We got this pole sticking out of our eye and we can't see that, but man, we can see microscopic problems in somebody else. We got no problem with that whatsoever. But they understood that they must see and confess their own sin. You know why? Because you cannot move in the right direction until you know where you are. You realize that? You can't move in the right direction unless you know where you are. And so that means that confession is a reset button. How cool is that? Confession is a reset button. How many times have you wished that you could just sort of wipe the slate clean and start all over again? All the time. I'm always kind of fascinated by New Year's Eve. Everybody on New Year's Eve night, if you watch the countdown, you know, at midnight, and everybody starts watching the ball drop, woo, that's so cool, you know, and then they start counting out, two, nine, eight, happy New Year, and then they act like everything changed. <laughs> Nothing changed. It's just 12.01 now instead of 12. Nothing changed, but they count down to zero from 10 and all of a sudden everything's different. You know what, church? Confession actually does make things different. You can have New Year's Eve any moment of any day that you want to. You come to the Lord and you confess your sin. You acknowledge where you are and it's hitting the reset button, wiping the slate clean and it's a fresh start. And you will never move forward until and unless you are willing to repent. It's like I said earlier, when you start talking about repenting in a church, it gets quiet these days. Nobody likes to repent. Why? Nobody wants to be wrong. But here's the thing. When we confess our sin to Jesus, yes, it's humbling. Because we're acknowledging his perfection compared to our imperfection. But there's a couple of things that come from that. One, we realize how, grace, how, how blessed we are that we receive the grace of a perfect God towards such imperfect people. We are not do anything that the Lord gives us or offers us, but he does it anyway. And we come to him and we, we acknowledge his perfection and our imperfection but it also reminds us that whatever he does, he has the right to do it. You know, it's really easy to get mad at God when things are going bad in your life, isn't it? Why did God let, me, let this happen? Why did God allow this to happen? Well, because he's God and he's perfect and we're imperfect and deeply flawed. And church, whatever God does is always right. It's always right. And confession allows us to make peace with that because we're reminding ourselves at the same time that we're confessing that we have a perfect God. Look at verse 33. They were sort of wrapping up their confession in verse 33 and they said, however, you're just in all that has befallen us for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. God, you had every right to wipe us out. You had every right to, to leave us, but you have dealt faithfully with us and we have done 
wickedly. And in verse 38, they said, because of all this, we make a sure covenant and we write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests, they seal it. Let me tell you what's going on here. They're acknowledging all of the mess-ups in their past. Their own, their own sin, they were owning it, confessing it. They were owning the, and confessing the sin of their forefathers that came before them. They made peace with all of it, and they said, God, because of that, we are making a covenant for what comes next. Church, what's happened before cannot be undone. Whatever you have done in your personal life, you can't undo it. You cannot unscramble eggs. Whatever's done is done. So there's no point in trying to go back and change it, hope, wish that it didn't happen. It happened. And it is what it is. And the, the Israelites here are saying, God, we can't change the past. We acknowledge it. But Lord, we are not okay with staying there. So we're going to make a new covenant with you to move forward with purpose and with clarity. See, the rest, the, the, everything that has led to this day, that's already written in your life. You can't, you can't take it out. You can rip the page out, but it doesn't change the history, does it? But the remaining days of your life have yet to be written. And you can either let them happen and be written by accident or they can be written on purpose. And that's what the Israelites were saying. We want to write them on purpose. We're going to make a new covenant. So they said, hey, you know what, God? Our wall has been restored. Our identity has been restored. And we are recommitted to walking with you. And we want to refocus ourselves on how does that work? How do we do that? And in the last few verses of Nehemiah, we see sort of basically how they decided to work forward. Look at verse 28 of Nehemiah chapter 10. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands of the law of God, their wives, their sons and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and they entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. These men stepped up and they led their families in following and being refocused on living for God. In verse 31 of chapter 10, they decided they would honor God's day. There were a lot of things that were going on on God's day. And they said, no more. Church, for the life of me, to me, Sunday's the best day of the week. But I know not everybody sees Sunday as the best day of the week, but God says it should be. And sometimes the way that we refocus on building the walls back in our life, maybe we've got to refocus on making a commitment to God's day. See, there's way too many people now that see Sunday as optional. Joining with God's family and church, that's optional. I got other things to do. I got better things to do. If you think you got better things to do, you are sadly mistaken. 
because there is nothing that can replace the gathering of God's people around God's word. So in verse 31, they said they were gonna honor God's day. Verses 35 through 39, you know what they decided? They're gonna honor God with their first fruits. You know what that means? That means the first of everything, of their crops, the first part of their money. We're gonna make sure that God gets what he ought to get. First, first. I don't know about y'all, um, Leslie and, and me, we have sort of different uh, uh, kind of wirings when it comes to giving. I have learned to be a giver. Leslie is naturally a giver. Some of you may relate to Leslie. Some of you may relate to me. I've had to learn to be a giver. And one of the ways that I learned to be a giver is that when, before I got into ministry, those few seasons of my life, that I would thought, well, I don't really have anything that I can afford to give God and I'm just gonna hold on. I've gotta make sure I take care of the things that I gotta take care of first. If there's anything left over, I'll give it to God. Some of you might know what that sounds like. Do you know how much is left over to give to God when you take that approach? Zero. Zero. You know why? Because Satan will take it all. The washing machine will break. The car will go on the fritz. The kids will have to go to the doctor. The clothes get holes in them. Everything will fall apart because he will eat it all up. But you know what happens when you give God first? Somehow he miraculously makes the rest cover everything else that's needed. It's an amazing thing. But you don't understand that and you don't live that out until you start to refocus on what does it mean to be recommitted to God now that he's restored me. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. This only gets lived out if men will lead as spiritual leaders. Everybody should have a rock. We're gonna do something very different this morning. We're still gonna bring our rocks to the wall, but here's how we're gonna do it. If you've got any children in this auditorium, I want families to do this together. Husbands and wives, or mom and dad and children, or dad and kids, or mom and kids, however, however your family is arranged, you get together with your family. And men, you drop your your rocks into the wall together, you build the wall together, and here's what I'm gonna ask you to do, men. I'm gonna ask you to get together with your family, just get off to the side, and you pray over your family this morning. And some of you as men go, well, I'm not sure, I, I, I don't do that. It's time to start. Well, I don't know what to pray. Well, let me give you a few ideas. Pray that God will bless your family, that he'll bless your wife. Pray that he'll bless your children. Pray that he'll give you wisdom and insight to see how you can serve them. Pray, pray for the, the friends in, in their circle of influence that, that God will protect them in ways that they need to be protected and use them in ways they can be used. Pray that God will use you to build a church that advances the gospel of Jesus Christ. You just pray blessing and protection and help over your family this morning. 
If you're a guest and you're by yourself, that's fine. Just come to the wall and pray. Drop your rock in the wall and you can pray there or pray at, at the altar this morning. But if you've got family, then go as a family together today because it will only happen, men, if we will lead the way that God has told us to lead. Father, as we go to this time of response, I just pray that you will wash over every family here this morning, God. God, wash over our men. Help them see their families and themselves in ways this morning that maybe they've never seen. And God, let us build something amazing together. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask everybody to stand. Families, find each other around the auditorium and you go as a family and you pray together as a family as you build a wall.